welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things Black history and beyond. Hello, hello, hello everyone and welcome to episode 43 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and I am your host today. And today we're going to be talking about the Bristol bus boycotts of 1963. Now if this is your first episode, then welcome to the History Hotline. And if you are returning, then thanks for coming back. I hope you enjoy this episode. So, we haven't really looked too much at, I don't think anywhere on this podcast, racism within specific institutions. Well, we kind of have. But I think of recent anyway, we've looked at like overt violence on the streets, murder, you know, the ways black people have faced like really violent hands um, of racism um, and that kind of uh, racist card in terms of like physical threats to to people's kind of existence. Um, But this week we're looking at, as I said, the Bristol bus boycotts. And I think it's going to show not only how racism took root in the workplace, but also successful activism that goes beyond protesting and it actually compromised the pockets of said racists to the point that they had to give in to the demands of what the black and Asian people who were protesting against the treatment of them themselves in the workplace um, and, you know, the fact that they weren't being hired um, as bus drivers, even though they were qualified. Um, And so today I'm hoping, yeah, we'll learn something new. It's something that I knew about but never knew about like I'd always heard about the Bristol bus boycotts but I'd never gone into depth with my research so I really enjoyed researching this episode and I'm excited to share what I have. So the Bristol bus boycotts began actually when the Bristol Omnibus Company refused to employ black or Asian bus crews in Bristol. This is clearly segregation it's the same segregation that Britain claims you know didn't exist because Britain's not racist it only existed in America you know we think about the color bar we think about segregation and Jim Crow in America and we can see the signs you know a water fountain that says whites only and another one that says coloreds only and a door entrance at the front for white people and one at the back for black people and a sign on a bus saying black people need to sit at the back and white people sit at the front and yes you know those kind of images weren't necessarily part of the landscape in British history however the attitudes were there the culture was very much there and what I find kind of extra funny about this story of the Bristol omnibus company refusing to employ black and Asian people is the fact that the first black bus driver uh, Joseph Clough also known as Joe he actually was born in 1885 and started driving the buses in Britain in 1912 and yes this was in London Um, And I think next episode will be about him because his story is quite cool as well. Um, But yeah, so a man born in 1885 is driving the buses in 1912. Fast forward to 1963 and in Bristol, they're refusing to hire uh, black and Asian bus crews. Make it make sense. And my point with that is, you know, I say or to say there were black bus drivers well before 1963. My granddad was one of them. He's driving the buses from the 50s in Birmingham. But I think it shows kind of this regional difference in terms of racism and how it kind of showed its ugly head in different parts of the country. And this is not to say that every area outside of London is racist because that's not true. And I hear that kind of narrative a lot and it's really tiring and it's very um, inaccurate to say the least. But here we are with this special case in Bristol. I think it also kind of links up to this idea. I think British people 
in a lot of respects, were very much okay with a token. Token black driver, token black teacher, token black doctor, token black successful person, i.e. President of the United States, not saying any names. However, when there starts to become an influx, when that starts to become habitual, when that kind of exceptional individual, the talented 10th, or whatever you want to call it, is kind of broken down because there is just so many people that are qualified for that particular role or that particular profession, it becomes a problem and... It seems as if, historically, British people have seen this as immigrants, quote-unquote, taking over, taking their jobs, taking their houses, taking their women, taking their country. Um, And they're not okay with this. And so, you know, the Bristol Omnibus Company goes far as saying, well, we're just not going to hire you guys, sus. Um, So, yeah, I think this is a very interesting case for me, especially because it's 1963, which is actually quite a lot later than a lot of the histories we've spoken about on this podcast, especially the ones of, like overt racism like you know 58 we've got the Notting Hill riots we've got Peter Rackman and his um landlord behavior and Kelso Cochrane's murder in 59 you know these are big moments and whilst yes we can fast forward to the 80s and see the riots there the 60s we don't really hear much about them I think in black British history we think about the 60s as a big turning point in America for civil rights law but it's not so much the case in Britain to be fair so 1960s, I would say, the majority of people, black people, in Britain are going to be from the West Indies, in smaller numbers from Asia, whether that be of Asian descent coming from East Africa, Kenya, Uganda, after the expulsion of uh, African Asians from those two countries, or in smaller numbers, they might have been from Africa and be of African descent. And so, you know, we're thinking about the Windrush generation who started their migration in 1948. We might even be on our second generation of people. Like, my parents' generation, born in the 60s. So that Windrush generation has children now. And they need jobs because they have people to provide for. And don't get me wrong, some of them did in the 40s and 50s, but it's more so the case now. This is where you start to see, especially in education, you know, these ESN schools and the problems with that, they're really coming to to head because it's a new generation with new needs, you know. Parents need to be able to feed their children. Children need good education. They need to know that there will be a future for their children in this country. If they can't get a job as a bus driver, you know, in Bristol in 1963, or will there be hope for their children? And I think all these questions are kind of pressing on the minds of um, newly arrived communities in this country at this point. So in the early 1960s, just for context, Bristol had around 3,000 residents of West Indian origin. And you might be thinking, oh, that's a lot. Bristol's a tiny place. Bristol is not that small. I will tell you that now. Um, The population at that time in 1963 was around 600,000. So if my maths are correct, that means 0.5% of the population were of West Indian origin. Essentially, there were a few token West Indian people. Um, A majority of them had served in the British military during World War II. Um, Some of them had just arrived in the late 50s, early 60s. So you've got quite a mix um, but regardless, you know, it doesn't matter where people came from, what they looked like, what they'd done before, you know, you treat people with respect. But this obviously wasn't going to be the case with the Bristol Omnibus Company. So 
just under the migration point, um, the Commonwealth Immigration Act was being passed kind of at this time, which was limiting the movement of people from colon- the colonies. Jamaica had just gained independence in 1962, so that also kind of changes the potential immigration status of, of many potential immigrants. It also means that immigration was once again part of the national conversation. I don't think it really stopped being part of the national conversation. Um, And this combined with the situation in Kenya and Uganda, as I said, where Asians were being displaced, ordered to leave by their governments. Um, At the time, British citizens, you know, were being forced out of Kenya and Uganda because Asian people coming from a Commonwealth country would have been British citizens. They're arriving on British soil. But the white people were not happy and it was part of a national conversation. And so it's very important, I think, to make sure we are aware that this anti-immigrant feeling, just because it's the 60s and people might have gotten used to the fact that people are migrating from the colonies and Commonwealth countries, this sentiment had not gone just yet. I mean, has it ever gone? <laughs> Let's be honest. Anyway, back to Bristol. A lot of West Indians lived in an area around City Road in St Paul's, Bristol, and there they faced a lot of housing and employment-based discrimination. Some encountered violence from the Teddy Boys, who we actually spoke about um, two episodes ago, episode 41, in the context of West London, but they didn't obviously just, you know, (laughs) live in West London and terrorise black people there. Um, There were a national organisation of people, or subculture, as Wikipedia likes to call them. In response... Uh, West Indian communities set up their own churches and associations, including the West Indian Association and also the West Indian Development Committee. One of the biggest issues for West Indian people was actually the colour bar of the Bristol Omnibus Company, um, which had been a nationalised company owned by the British government since around 1950, and it was operated through the Transport Holding Company. Um, There was a labour shortage on the buses, which is hilarious because they were refusing to take on black and Asian crews. But there was a labour shortage. Um, And that was like a lot of industries at the time. But they refused um, still to hire black people. Um, However, they did actually employ them in lower paid positions, such as workshops um, and in the canteens. So it wasn't a case of, you know, they thought black people were incapable of work or something like that. They simply did not want them in position where they had any kind of authority over white people. Um, And the company management kind of blamed it all on the Transport and General Workers Union, uh, the TGWU, which represented the bus workers. It was common at the time, though, for trade unions not to accept black people or Asian people um, across a wide range of fields, factory work especially. Um, And so they were oftentimes unprotected by any legal bodies. Trade unions mostly looked after the interests of the white working class, protecting them from wage deflation because they thought that an increase in immigrants um, and immigrant labour meant that it would reduce their earning potential. And so the union, their role at that time was actually to protect the wages of white people, um, especially within the working class. Um, because there was a fear that there would be an influx um, and it would drive wages down. And, you know, to me, it's just ridiculous, but it's not hard to believe because we hear and we see that same rhetoric now when we think about immigration today, whether it was from the EU and Britain was part of it or even um, in more recent times. 
Local union officials denied that there was any colour bar, uh, but in 1955, the passenger group of the TGWU, the union, um, they passed a resolution that, quote-unquote, coloured workers should not be employed as bus crews. So this was, like, you know, passed as legislation within the passenger group. Um, Andrew Hake, who is actually curator at the Bristol Industrial Mission, record that... Um, the TGW in the city had said that if one black man steps on the platform as a conductor, every wheel will stop. Doesn't get more dramatic than that, does it, Andrew Hake? But, of course, West Indians would mean they were fed up, you know. This wasn't probably the first piece of racism that they'd dealt with. Um, and for young West Indian men in particular, uh, Roy Hackett, Owen Henry, Audley Evans and Prince Brown formed an action group later to be called the West Indian Development Council. Roy Hackett, um, he actually helped to set up the Commonwealth Coordinated Committee, the CCC, in 1962, which was there to unite the Caribbean community and support any black person facing discrimination. Um, They were just unhappy with the lack of progress um, in fighting discrimination, especially because there was already, as I mentioned, the West Indian Association, and I think they felt that it wasn't really moving quick enough or powerful enough um, and making the changes that they felt were necessary. And so, you know, this group of men kind of came together in order to make a change. Um, So, yeah, as I mentioned, Roy Hackett helps up the CCC and Owen Henry, who had met Paul Stevenson, and Paul Stevenson was quite an important man in Bristol, I would say. He was a youth officer for Bristol City Council and became the city's first black social worker. His father was from West Africa and his mother was British. He was born in Essex. He was educated um, and he's often described as articulate, which I don't really like when black people are just called articulate because I think it assumes that black people can't speak formally or, you know don't know the Queen's English or, you know, whatever other misconceptions and stereotypes there are about black people. But I do understand, you know, within the context of activism and public speaking, he was able to articulate himself very well. He was a gifted organiser and this was exemplified in the way he handled the situation in Bristol. You know, this is his home. He doesn't want to see, see this for people. He's not trying to become a bus driver. You know, he has his career in social work, but he knew the importance of changing this situation and the narrative for black people because, you know, he was doing that work as an activist and as a worker setting up these groups. So, as I said, he ran the West Indian Development Committee and then together with the CCC, the Commonwealth Coordinated Committee, um, they took on the Bristol Omnibus Company. So obviously they decided that Stevenson would be their spokesperson. And first of all, he set up a test case to prove that there was a colour bar and that discrimination was at play. So he arranged an interview with the bus company for a man called Guy Bailey, who again, and I quote, was a young, well-spoken, um, unqualified Jamaican warehouse man um, and also a boys brigade officer. Um, so when Stevenson told the company that Bailey was West Indian, the interview was cancelled. Just like magic, it was not happening. Um, and so he was inspired by Rosa Parks um, and her decision not to give up her seat in Alabama, which led to the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955 in America. Um, the activists decided that a bus boycott would be most appropriate. And I love that they used just a tried and tested method that worked so well in Montgomery and was now going to work so well in Bristol. Um, you know, protests are important. Riots are important. 
but a boycott really does hit them in the money bags, which is exactly what we need sometimes. They announced their plans to boycott the buses along with other West Indian Asian people at that time on the 29th of April. Um, and, you know, the following day, they claimed that no West Indians would be using the buses and also many white people that supported them would also not be using the buses. Um, and in an editorial, the Bristol Evening Post actually pointed out that, funnily enough, um, the union, the TGWU, actually opposed apartheid in South Africa. Um, and so it was a kind of question of like, well, what are you doing about racism in your own ranks? You know, you've got a lot to say about South Africa, um, which obviously was a terrible situation and a lot should have been said. Um, but, you know, when asked this question, the focus was shifted um, away from South Africa um, and away from the racism that, you know, they were dishing out to, to West Indian people and Asian people. Um, Ian Patey, the general manager, actually gave a statement, of course, um, and I'll read that out to you. The advent of coloured crews would mean a gradual falling off of white staff. It is true that London Transport employ a large coloured staff. They even have two recruitment offices in Jamaica and they subsidise the fares to Britain of their new coloured employees. As a result of this, the amount of white labour dwindles steadily on the London underground. You won't get a white man in London to admit it. But which of them will join a service where they may find themselves working under a coloured foreman? I understand that in London, coloured men have become arrogant and rude after they have been employed for some months. Now, if you've gotten over the shock and the audacity of this man to fix his lips to talk about black people, black men becoming arrogant and rude because they are put in a job, such as driving the buses, and that white people, white men won't want to work under a black man or a coloured quote-unquote foreman. Really? Really, Ian? Really? Honestly, we're never shocked because we've heard this and worse. If you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you'll know. But I think, for me, it's the excuses and the reasons that are just absolutely ridiculous that he's actually looking to London and saying that, you know, there's not that many white people driving trains in London. So, so what? Is a job being done? Are the trains being driven? Are people getting to work, to school, to the shops? Yes. So what is the problem? What's the issue? Oh, I'm going to have a moment to breathe. And when I come back, I'm going to tell you more. <laughs> okay, so what this man is saying in what I've said before is that the only way black people can be employed in Britain is in inferior, submissive roles, answering to a white manager or white boss. And for me, this mindset of British people comes from slavery, this idea that black people must be in a position of submission for society to work. It's persistent, it's symptomatic of the lack of black people in leadership positions today in certain industries. That's another debate for another day. But I think it's very clear here that the problem is not necessarily with black people, but it's with black people being in positions of power over white men, quite specifically white men. You know, in World War I, black soldiers were not allowed to be on the front lines because they didn't feel right, and by they, I mean the British, did not feel right that a black man should have a gun and potentially shoot down a German or a European, i.e. another white person. And that's not a lie. That's not just a speculation that was said. So this isn't new. This is the same 
racism. It's showing a different face in a different situation, but it's the same racism from the same ugly family. Anyway, students from Bristol University held a protest march, actually, at the bus station. So they combined the little boycott with a protest march at the local HQ of that union, that smelly union, on the 1st of May. So, you know, we started on the 29th with the press conference in April. 1st of May, got a protest by the uni. Um, it attracted heckling from the bus crews and workers, actually, that were going into the city, um, according to local press. The boycott begins to receive national and international attention. Prime Minister Harold Wilson, Labour politician Tony Benn, and the famous West Indian cricketer Sir Leary Constantine, who we spoke about in episode 11, he also begins to support the campaign. And at this point, he is actually High Commissioner for Trinidad and Tobago. So he's got a lot of power behind him, you know. He's not just a cricketer who's been, you know, racially insulted and discriminated against in a hotel um, in the 1950s. This is Leary Constantine, who is an ex-cricket player, High Commissioner to Trinidad. He actually wrote letters to the bus company um, and Stevenson spoke out against the Colabata reporters when he attended um, a cricket match between the West Indies and Gloucestershire at the county ground, which took place from the 4th to the 7th of May of that year. So, you know, the cricket aligned. Um, the West Indies team actually didn't publicly support the boy boycott. They refused to, which is really unfortunate, um, saying that sport and politics did not mix. During um, the game, local members of Campaign Against Raci Racial Discrimination card distributed leaflets urging spectators to support the action, which is very interesting because, obviously, the West Indies cricket team were not supporting. Um, however, they were asking the fans to. Um, this idea that sports and politics shouldn't mix, it's something we've heard before, you know, thinking about football. Um, it's very long-standing. It's a long-standing view I personally hate this idea that racism is seen as political. It's racism. It's compromising equality. It's compromising people's livelihoods, their way of life, their earning potential. Um, and it's like dismissed as politics and oh, sports people shouldn't get involved. Mm, not really my view, but we'll leave that one because that, again, is definitely another episode for another day. Negotiations between the bus company and the union went on for several months until in August 27th, a mass meeting of 500 bus workers was agreed and they agreed to end the colour bar. Hooray! And I've made that sound very simple. We've literally gone from um, the protest being publicly announced, the boycott, sorry, to a protest, to a few press conferences, and then just like that it happened. Obviously, that's not the case, you know. It was very slow. And in this time, people couldn't travel or didn't travel and wouldn't travel on the buses. So they would have had to make alternative arrangements to get themselves to work, get their children to school, get around Bristol. Um, and so, you know, whilst we kind of gloss over that for the sake of time, um, it is important to consider. So on August 28th, uh, 1963, Ian Patey, man like Ian, he announced that there would be no more discrimination in employing bus groups. Um, and it was actually on that same day, that Martin Luther King made his famous I Have a Dream speech at the March on Washington. And I don't know if it's just me, but when I think of civil rights, even though I know it's the 60s, it feels like so long ago. But to think this Bristol bus boycott and the Windrush generation, this is coinciding. This is happening at the same time. And for me, the Windrush generation doesn't seem so long ago because it's my grandparents' life. Do you know what I mean? So... When you think about Martin Luther King and the civil rights in America, 
that's also in your grandparents' life or your parents or your own, maybe. Um, so, yeah, very interesting that that all happened on the same day, August 28th, 1963. Um, but anyway, by the 17th of September, Ragbir Singh, a Sikh graduate, became Bristol's first non-white bus conductor. A few days later, two Jamaican and two Pakistani men joined him. So the aftermath of the Bristol bus boycotts in 1963. Well, 1965, the United Kingdom Parliament passed a Race Relations Act, which made racial discrimination unlawful in public places, which we've spoken about, actually, in brief, in a number of episodes. If Off the top of my head, I think the second Mangrove episode, maybe episode one or two. Um, and... Yeah, this was followed by Race Relations Act of 1968, which extended provisions to housing and employment. So this meant now it was actually illegal to do what the Bristol Omnibus Company tried to do. Um, But as you obviously know, then it wasn't illegal before. It was just seen as kind of socially unacceptable by some. Um, And so that was where the kind of pressure came from. But there was obviously nothing that say that the police couldn't just come in and say no you need to let these people do this, or it couldn't go to court because there was no law. They weren't breaking any laws by being racist. Um, It wasn't until 2013 that the TGWU, the union, um, actually issued an apology. And obviously it was not the person, you know, that conducted this colour bar. It was a man called Lawrence Faircloth, who was the union's Southwest secretary. Um, He gave an apology, obviously, in retrospect. Um, he said the union stance at the time was completely unacceptable um, and he says I can well accept the sense of injustice and pain that's been felt because of what happened in Bristol all those years ago um, and yeah so that there was an apology which is nice 2013 is a long time after but you know these things happen um, and by these things I mean late apologies not <laughs> segregation on buses uh, that's not okay um, and in 2009 actually Stevenson um who was kind of the leader of the boycotts in a way, or the the spokesperson, shall we say. He was awarded an OBE for his part in organising, and Bailey and Hackett were also awarded OBEs, and that was 2009. So it's funny because they were kind of recognised by Queen and Country um, prior to the apology in 2013. Um, And I have a lot of strong opinions about (laughs) OBEs and MBEs, but they're definitely not for today. So... That's kind of what happened in Bristol with the bus boycotts. I like this story because it speaks on a different kind of activism. Um, and I think boycotts are so powerful. And I wish we used them more today. But they take so much willpower. Because, for example, if you don't want to support a company like Amazon because, you know, you don't believe in Jeff Bezos's extreme wealth or the way they treat their workers or, you know, their policies on waste, etc. Whatever your reason is, you know... You could boycott them, but because, you know, the rest of the world is using their service, it won't really make a difference. Um, And the point of a boycott is to hurt their pockets, and it's not really going to hurt Jeff's pockets because he obviously has so many other businesses. But when you have, I think, smaller scale, you know, situations like the Omnibus Company in Bristol, the um, bus company, you know, you can do that very effectively. Um, And I think it, it would be good if maybe for the sake of anti-racist struggles and and black liberation, we took on tactics like this a little bit more in the future. Um, But yeah, that's a a lot of food for thought, I think, for for, for today. Um, I'm working really hard to keep my episodes under 30 minutes because I think it's the perfect commuting time and I think a lot of people are going back to the office now. So if that's you and you're listening on the 
on the way into work. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for listening. Thank Goodbye. you for listening to the History Hotline. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation about black history, head over to our social media platforms at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter.